Kentucky Court Furniture Clearance Center for up to 70% off new retail prices. Stock is updated regularly, so you never know what kind of treasures you'll find. We offer a wide variety of stylish furniture for any budget, and every piece is court certified, so you can let your personality show in every room. And now through April 3rd is our tax refund sale. Mention refund 25 and take 25% off living room and dining room beds. Use your refund and refresh your home with stylish finds from Court Furniture Clearance Center. Go to courtclearancefurniture.com today. You're listening to a Castaway Media Podcast. Find more great shows at castaway.media or find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash castawaypodcasts. Welcome to episode five of Fair Game. I'm Emily Glenn. I'm Elaine Buckley. On this episode, we are tackling a topic that is all over your airwaves and news sources at the moment, doping. It feels like there's a new scandalous allegation breaking practically every week, from athletics to tennis and most recently, soccer. How can sport be saved from the scourge of doping? Later on in the show, we're going to be chatting to retired Irish race walker, Olive Lochnan, who was recently declared a world champion and awarded a retrospective gold medal over six years after she crossed the finish line. But first, to talk us through the increasingly big and murky picture of doping in sport, we're joined by the Irish Sports Council Director for Participation and Ethics, Dr Una May. Una, you're very welcome to Fair Game. Thanks very much. Una, I don't think we can talk about doping on a women's sports podcast without first addressing the recent revelations about Maria Sharapova. Um, What did you make of the whole situation, the whole kind of announcement? Was it pure masterclass or cheater caught in the headlights? I would say it was an attempt at a PR masterclass, but I'd say it failed rather badly because within a very small number of hours, it was very clear that nobody really believed a word she said. Um, I think her her story wasn't strong and, you know, it, it's an issue that, 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 you know, a lot of people are being tested positive for this substance. But, you know, she could have explained it if she was living in Russia, maybe. But when you're living in the States and you're taking a substance that not li- that isn't licensed in the States, it's pretty hard to explain and justify that. And there were a lot of other situations, circumstances to say she was taking it as a potential protection against diabetes. And yet she's, you know, promoting a line of candy. And, you know, there are so many sides to the story that just didn't wash. Um, so I, I, I would say it was a failure if it was a PR exercise. Mm-hmm. It was. And it's, it's kind of been interesting to see her fans kind of defending her and I would be a massive Sharapova fan have been for what 12, 13 years now but like the way it was just it was you could it was so transparent even if you didn't want to believe it and Mm. it's just I'm a bit heartbroken about it to be honest Yeah you know it is tough and you know know, because she was such a kind of golden girl it's always tough you know it's it's a lot easier if someone's kind of not not really an important figure or if someone's kind of a big bad athlete for whatever reason but when she's a golden girl it makes it a lot harder to stomach when something like this arises but it just goes to show like that every sport is potentially at risk and tennis has managed to stay under the radar although there have been quite a lot of sort of rumours and suggestions so it is interesting when when a case comes to light you know after a lot of say rumours and things but no substantiated findings in the past mm-hmm. kind of makes you think about what what has gone before her like I remember reading in, in Andre Agassi's book that he tested positive for a class A drug and he simply wrote a letter saying I was spiked 
and he got away with it. Yeah. So it it does kind of make you kind of think back to what what's what's gone before her in in tennis. If if there's going to be a big implosion like with cycling. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I suspect it wouldn't be as bad as the likes of cycling. Unfortunately for cycling, it's 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 bad that we have to use it as an example, but it is the reality. And um, with tennis, you know, th- there was the announcement last weekend in the Sunday Times about um, a doctor based in the UK who was giving substances to athletes. And I think there was a reference to tennis there. There's a big case ongoing for a number of years in Spain where a doctor was involved in blood doping and tennis was listed as a possible sport that was implicated. So, you know, I, I think that there it's unlikely that it's not been affected by doping. Um, and, you know, I guess the whole world of anti-doping has come on an awful lot in recent years and has developed quite phenomenally really in, in the scope and potential and the, the possibilities we have to detect substances, the, the systems that are in place, the, the disciplinary systems, um, intelligence, investigations, information sharing, you know, things have moved on a lot. So whereas there may have been potential loopholes in the past, I hope that those loopholes are tightening. Can you explain to us those structures? So so what are the, the systems that are in place and um, the anti-doping structures and systems that will catch athletes who may be taking performance han- enhancing drugs, not just in Ireland, but in a global sense? Well, I, I, I guess traditionally the, the main thing has always been detection of a banned substance in an athlete sample. And even within that, the technology has moved on. We've got much more sophisticated tests nowadays that the... the, the um, there's information being received by labs and by the World Anti-Doping Agency um, about new substances and they develop tests very quickly. They're working really closely with the pharmaceutical industry now and if the pharmaceutical industry is, is working on a, the development of a new drug that they think will be abused potentially by athletes, they're helping the World Anti-Doping Agency to develop a test before it's ever put on the market. So th- from the testing side of things, um, you know, things have moved on very rapidly Um in addition to that, I suppose there have been a lot of changes in the approach, um, for example, with the information sharing, as I was saying earlier, in terms of intelligence and, you know, that whole side of investigations. So the likes of the Russian situation, which has come out of an investigation um, into corruption and into potential doping in, in Russian athletics, but has revealed an awful lot more than that, obviously. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of developments and things are moving along rapidly. Um you know, there's any number of new, new developments. Mm-hmm. And specifically here at home, um, the Irish Sports Council protect Ireland's sporting integrity against the threat of doping. What are the, I suppose, the, the checks that are routinely carried out and the educational resources that are, are circulated? Well, we carry out about a thousand tests a year, approximately. So very, very roughly. And we test both in competition and out of competition. We do about 40% of our tests in competition. You know, it's generally kind of felt that you really only catch kind of, I won't say stupid, but like I mean stupid people, you know, in testing because in competition, because they know that we, we you know, we will test at national championship level and at, at, at major international level testing will take place. And that will always be the case. Um, but 60% of our testing is out of competition. So that's where we go either to training or to an athlete's home. And with no advance notice, we arrive and ask an athlete for a sample. So that's the probably more valuable part of our testing. And we have a number of different people who we approach. So we 
have what we call a registered testing pool, which is our list of athletes that we would consider to be at highest risk of doping or maybe athletes who are in receipt of government funding um, athletes in certain sports and athletes at certain levels of certain sports. So they would be the main target group for us and they'd be the people we would go to their homes to test them with no advance notice and they would have quite strict controls in terms of providing us with information about where they live, where they train and what they do from day to day. Um, then obviously we target the, the team sports as well and within the team sports we target um, team training venues rather than having, otherwise we'd be trying to manage many thousands of athletes information. So that that's how the, the testing programme works. Um, and then we have the education element then of what we do and, and I suppose historically we've focused all our attention on those athletes who might be tested and that can be athletes who are tested potentially at home and also abroad so we would focus a lot of attention on the registered testing pool because we know we're going to test them otherwise they wouldn't be on the list um, and then we also would have focused our test our education for example um, a national governing body if they're sending a team abroad might ask us to come and do a presentation for the, for the squad or the team who are going away so we try and make sure that any Anyone who's likely to be tested is properly educated on what happens during a test. Um, they know what's on the banned list. They know what the potential um, offences are because finding a substance in your sample is not the only one these days. There are other things around aiding, abetting and complicity. And there's all sorts of different, um, you know, potential offences which are now included as part of, of, of the anti-doping rule violations. How does Ireland's and how does Ireland's testing programme compare internationally? Like, you know, the Jamaican doping systems and the Kenyan have been recently in the news. Like, how do we compare? Because that sounds like it's all pretty strict. Like, that sounds like it's pretty rigorous. You've got a really rigorous testing programme and system there. Like, yeah. does that make... Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, you know, without blowing our own trumpet, <laughs> you know, um, we do have a very good programme. And um, we're, we're recognised for that. We've we've been asked members of, of staff within the unit, as I, um, I was explaining earlier to you guys, that um, we have a member of staff who's on the advisory, the um, Council of Europe Education Advisory Committee. We have representatives who've worked as um, outreach at Olympic Games. And to myself and one of uh, Siobhan Leonard, who's the, the manager of the anti-doping programme, we've both worked as independent observers on behalf of the World Anti-Doping Agency at Olympic Games and World Games and that sort of thing. So we are recognised as being um, at a high level and you know I, I guess the fact that David Howman came to visit us yesterday for the launch of our annual report was was you know a reflection of, of the status that we have and that he was willing to come over and, and talk to us and talk to our media and talk to our national governing bodies about what you know what is doing but also acknowledging you know the status of the Irish programme. Mm-hmm. We, talk, we talked a bit earlier about kind of the, uh, the consequences of people who maybe are caught taking performance enhancing drugs um, what what are the punishments in place for I suppose convicted cheats kind of besides being publicly dis- disgraced and having your records expunged is there any other implications be it like monetary or sentencing or anything like that well the main the main thing is is a ban from sport and that has become very significantly more serious in that since 2015 there's a new world anti-doping code and the minimum ban went from two years to four years and that was primarily based on feedback from athletes who wanted to see a fairer system in place so that an athlete couldn't come back um, after one games and be re- be back in time for the next Olympic Games for example or you know the, the main the cycle in a lot of sports would be it would be four years so the idea was that if somebody was banned that they would be banned from a full cycle and and as a result that could be career ending in some sports you know four years is a serious ban. 
do you think there's been a bit of a change in culture because we've seen like we've seen athletes especially in athletics who have had doping bans and then who've come back and been embraced by their sponsors um i'm i'm thinking of tyson gay and and um and then kind of comparing that to to the recent culture shift and the recent response to sharapova and Mm -hmm. her sponsors have just kind of you know they've just bailed really like they bailed on mass really mm. quickly after after her conference. Do you think yeah. there's a shift in culture? I think there is. And I think the sponsors, the sponsorship is a good example. Um, I mean, if you looked at the way things were in cycling, the sponsors continued to hang around even after there were complete disastrous situations. Whereas uh, Maria Sharapova's was quite interesting because that was the quickest we've seen. Even Nike dropped her very quickly. And Nike, you don't exactly have a reputation for, for you know, dropping mm. people very quickly. They're, they're a bit more forgiving, I think. Uh, um, so they have been in the past. So there does seem to be a bit of a shift. and. I guess the huge revelations that have come out in recent years has people really, really concerned and it's got raised awareness of the issue and people are much more, I suppose, unwilling to accept when they see that it's becoming widespread. And it's not just amongst the athletes. I think that's where it's really you know, important because the new code recognises that it's not just the athletes who are involved and there are new sanctions against what we call the athlete support personnel, which would be the doctors, the coaches and people around an athlete, because often they're the ones who are probably most um, guilty in terms of, you know, putting pressure on athletes and supporting and encouraging athletes to take doping substances. And then when you see corruption then within an, an international federation, I think that's just that's, I suppose, tips people over the edge in terms of their acceptance of a situation. But the, the, the challenge we have is that there's differences across the world in terms of culture. You know, mm-hmm. what's acceptable in one culture is not acceptable in another. And, you know, that's something we have to get over. You know, you know, even just some, you know, parts of Europe would be more accepting of certain types of cultures than other parts of Europe. And so that that's a challenge we have. And we have to work on building, you know, the anti-doping culture across the board, across athletes, across all all walks of life. And that's why I suppose with our education programme, the work we've been doing in the last year, our, our effort is, is being put into trying to expand the message so that it's not just the athletes who are going to be tested, but that we develop it um, to, to include, you know, not just those athletes, but also younger athletes, developmental athletes, parents, everybody, so that we develop a kind of a values based culture that, you know, doping is just part of it, but that, you know, we kind of raise sort of high moral standards amongst our athletes that they believe in in our same ethical values across the board. Mm. And I suppose kind of at a a basic level um, in terms of kind of people innocently taking supplements and they may not know that that they're taking something that's that's on the banned list like is does that come into it as well like people genuinely taking taking uh, banned substances by mistake or realistically it can happen yes um now, what we try and do is mitigate against that by providing athletes all the advice and support and information we can give them to help them to try to reduce those risks. But no matter what they do, if they take a supplement, they expose themselves to risks. Now, we, we do kind of encourage, as I say, risk minimization strategies. Make sure you don't go buying off the Internet. Make sure you know the company. Check and see if it's batch tested. Um, there are lots of different things they can do to check a supplement. But the reality is there are lots of supplements out there that are contaminated and it's a multi-billion dollar industry that's very hard to, to regulate and although there are regulations in place it's very hard to manage those um, th- that th- such a huge industry and, and as I say the internet is the biggest the biggest risk of all um, So we've recently seen Justice Serve for two Irish athletes we're speaking 
later to all of Lochnan and also Rob Heffernan who were upgraded to 2009 World Championship gold and 2012 Olympic bronze respectively. Um, that in itself is a really lengthy process. Can you, can you break down that process for us? It is, yeah. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about it because I knew you were going to be talking to Olive and I was thinking about the fact that we've also had Dervil O'Rourke and we've also had Roisin McGettigan. So we've had four Irish athletes in the last couple of years who've received medals that they otherwise wouldn't have. Um, so, you know, it's a big win. It is great that they're getting them. It's really, really unfortunate that it takes so long to get them. But what happens as a general rule, you know, we have a very complicated and you know, I suppose it, it's a technical process for an athlete um, when it comes to testing and when it comes to proving it, an athlete is guilty. We have, yeah, we have the outcome of a test, but we have to actually support that and, and they will challenge. Athletes will always challenge. It's very unusual for an athlete to put their hands up and say, OK, you've caught me. So they will challenge every aspect of every item on the list. You know, we were in our annual report launch yesterday. We, we announced two um, violations which had been taken place in 2014 but only came to light in 2015. So it takes a long time for these cases to run through because athletes will look for information. We'll go back with that information. They'll go back to another. They become experts, get involved. So a whole case can take a long time. And what then happens is the next step then is there's appeals. So the whole thing can take a very long time. And I guess in the case of the two recent ones, it came out of the investigation. So if it weren't for that investigation, which was based on athletes providing information and whistleblowers who took huge risks, really, because, again, given the, the culture in Russia, for the for this athlete and her coach um, to come out and take huge risks, they've literally on the, the equivalent of a witness protection programme, you know, they are now in another country and have been assisted by the World Anti-Doping Agency to move to a different country to protect them. But they took a huge risk, but they did share that information. And as a result, we've got a situation where an awful lot of new information has arisen. So, you know, that that's that's great, but it does, unfortunately take a long time yeah it's absolutely terrifying for for the whistleblowers like that that they are literally opening a massive can of worms it's like again we hate to use cycling as, as the go-to example but the fallout from the land from lance armstrong and the intimidation tactics he used and kind of trying to silence frankie and betsy andrew all that stuff whilst he was giving his own team blood transfusions and it's just the more books that were written and the more people that were interviewed it just all eventually came out so kind of it being an olympic year a huge doping shaped shadow has been cast over athletics. Do, do you think the reputation can be salvaged or is, is it going to be really felt this year at the Olympics? Well, I think it will be felt and I guess all eyes are watching to see whether Russia will be allowed to compete and that is going to be really, really critical. Um, our, our preference is that they wouldn't. We don't believe that they could possibly be back on track and be clear of all historical doping offences. And the German documentary, which released a lot of the information, a follow up documentary um, was was aired in which the, um, the the journalist established that the same coaches are still coaching and that the same people who are dealing in, in doping substances are still dealing in doping substances. So, you know, it's not that simple. It will take a long time and we'd be very disappointed if the Russians do, um, I suppose, get to participate in the Olympics. Um, there's now question marks over whether Kenya will as well. So, you know, it, it, it's going to start to look a little bit thin if we have to remove all these. But at the same time, at least it's giving a really strong message that it, for once it has been taken very seriously. And we, we can't just accept people in on their word that they've improved and they've taken the right steps. We need evidence and we need proof that, that they have before we can really let them line up against the clean athletes. 
Well, speaking of clean athletes, we are really looking forward to following all of our clean athletes and our sportswomen on um, on their road to Rio. Thank you so much for, for coming in to, to talk to us about this. We uh, were really grateful and we, we really love this chat. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks a lot. At the 2009 Athletics World Championships in Berlin, Irish race walker Olive Lochnan finished second in the 20km event to claim a silver medal. However, a few weeks ago, as a result of a ruling by the Court of Arbitration for Sport, it was confirmed that Olive's silver medal would be upgraded to gold due to the annulment of disgraced Russian athlete Olga Keneskina's competition results. Olive now joins us on the line from her native county Cork to tell us all about it. Olive, first and foremost, congratulations. Being named a world champion when you've been retired from competitive action for over three years is very impressive. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've had that joke with my with my family that when the athletes still winning medals after I retired. <laughs> but yeah, it's nice. It's nice to get the recognition, and I think that's probably the most important thing. And due due to the suspension of Russian athletes by the IAAF, you knew that a retrospective upgrade was in the offing. But when did you officially get the news you'd been waiting for? Like, how did it feel? Um, well, I suppose yeah. The the athlete concerned had admitted that she had been taking performance enhancing substances um, the day that uh, we raced. Um, but it's still nice to see it um, on the IAAS website that I am the world champion and uh, it has a great ring to it. Um, so I just heard, I suppose, I knew the the judgment from CAS, the Court of Arbitration for Sport was imminent. So I'd kind of been keeping my ears peeled for that um, because I suppose it is very nice to get the official Word. Does it change your memory of the 2009 World Championships podium? Because it must be kind of bittersweet then to kind of look back on with, with the news. No, I mean, it doesn't change my memories of um, of 2009. I mean, I have very happy memories of 2009. It's just it's just an add on really is the way I see it. Um, it's something that I'm very, you know, it's great to know that my best was the best in the world. Like, I know that I did everything I could on the day. Um, and it's a bonus to know that that was better than second best, if that's the way to put it. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I was happy then. I'm happy now. Um, and people, you know, sometimes ask, am I disappointed? Am I bitter? No, I'm not. Because, you know, if I was to be bitter and disappointed now, well, then that would take the good out of now. And I just really, you know, don't see the point, I suppose. And, you know, I um, and I suppose, you know, I see my daughter and she understands it more now. So kind of every cloud is a sil- silver lining and, and there's really no point in dwelling on it. And I'm not really cool and calm and collected about many things, but this is actually ironically something that I'm very happy to, to just take it as it comes. And Olive, have you have you thought about how kind of in in bigger picture in, in, in other tournaments say Olympic Games how dopers may have influenced the results of say crucial qualification he- heats or do you think about that kind of stuff or do you just have to let those things go um, no I mean like I suppose I wouldn't be human if I didn't you know do a little bit of what ifing and I suppose the, the one that I feel you know that I was probably most caught up about was the world or the Olympics in London where I finished 13th um, but there was um, two number one and two subsequently tested positive. Um, number three came from the same training group. So, you know, and I suppose their presence there. I finished 13th because I went out and tried to 
you know, race for a medal and I burned. And I suppose their participation changed the complexion of the race. But who knows, you know, what could have been or what might have been. And, you know, as I say, I tried to park that. I think I knew at the time that there was that there were a lot of issues around them immediately after London. So I suppose it's nearly four years ago now. So I've, I've kind of parked it. But it does bring it up. You know, I mean, I think someone asked the question, oh, does this bring it from 13th to 12th in London? Which does. But like, you know, I mean, that's kind of small beer really given that I'd finished seventh in the previous Olympics um, so you know I just I just I'm human like anybody else I do wonder um, but at the same time I'm not bitter about Berlin We've spoken earlier in the episode to uh, Dr Una May who was talking to us about uh, the testing regimes and structures and I'm just kind of wondering with the benefit of hindsight what do you think could have been done better on behalf of WADA and the IAAF throughout your competitive career if anything? Um, well, you know, I suppose as an athlete, I concentrated on the things that I had control over. Um, I tried to influence the things I had influence over. And there were some things I didn't feel I had any influence over. And I kind of had to park those. And, and that's what I did to a large extent. I reported anything that I saw. Um, and that wasn't very much. On one occasion, I saw the Russians act suspiciously. And I reported that at the time to WADA. Um, so... I suppose the biggest issue I have with all of this um, and with all the revelations that have come out in the last 18 months or maybe 15 months is that the role of the IAAF, the world governing body, and how they were largely complicit um, and instead of protecting clean athletes like myself, that they, in fact, um, that they protected some of the dopers and that that they were themselves taking bribes. It's looking increasingly likely that Russia will play no part in this year's Summer Olympic Games in Rio. Do you think this is an extreme across the board measure or is it simply justice being served? Um, You know, I don't, I'm not one of these people. I know some of the Russian athletes who were clean. They were few and and far between, but I do know some of them were clean. Um, And I'd be fairly confident of that. And I think it's extremely harsh on them. Um, I, however, I don't think that the authorities in Russia will sit up and take notice unless something is something extreme is done. And I think measures like this, um, while I feel a certain sem- sympathy for and empathy with people who are not dirty, um, I feel that for the gr- unfortunately for the greater good that this that this is the only way that the authorities will take notice. Olive, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Game and we really just want to say congrats again. Thank, thank you very, very much. much. Lovely to speak with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fair Game. Check out our website castaway.media forward slash fair game for an archive of our episodes to date and check back in fortnightly for future episodes. You can also search and subscribe to Fair Game on iTunes or whatever other podcasting app you use. Special thanks to our guests for this episode, Dr. Una May and Olive Lochnan. You can follow Una on Twitter at Una May Sport and Olive at Olive Lochnan. Give us a follow too while you're at it. The username is at FairGameCast and there's a steady flow of updates and articles on women's sports for you there, not just in Ireland, but worldwide. We love to hear from our listeners. So let us know your thoughts by using the hashtag FairGamePodcast or by emailing us via womeninsportpodcast at gmail.com. That's it for this episode. Join us again in two weeks time when we'll have another Road to Rio special with runner Sarah Tracy. Until then, bye.
This was a Castaway Media production. Find more great podcasts on our network. Visit castaway.media. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, we love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection this spring at Total Wine and More. Cheers!